Today we have our last speaker for this quarter in the seminar series, and it's a pleasure to introduce uh, Kate Whittlebank, who's uh, decided, much to, um, you know, it's our good fortune that she's decided this, that to spend her sabbatical uh, here at the University of Chicago. And Professor Brittlebank comes to us from the University of Tasmania, where she teaches in the Department of History and Classics. Um, I asked her earlier about how long she has worked on Tipu Sultan, whether it was two decades. And she said, well, give or take. There were little breaks in between. But generally, when I was unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, I just wanted to say that Professor Brittlebank actually works on one of the most fascinating figures of uh, South Asian history and her, her 1997 book called Tipu Sultan's Search for Legitimacy, Islam and Kinship uh, in a Hindu Domain came out of Oxford University Press in um, New Delhi. And the talk that we're going to hear today continues uh, looking at Tipu Sultan in particular, his dream register. So um, please welcome Professor Kate Brittlebank, who's going to talk on the specific topic of the heuristic potential of the dream register of Mysore Stipul Sultan. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'd first of all like to thank the organizers of this seminar for asking me to come along and talk. I invited myself when I ran into Depeche at the uh, Australian National University to come here for a month, uh, specifically to work with Muzaffar, who has wonderful Persian language skills uh, compared to my not very wonderful Persian language skills. Um, and so really I'm here to talk to Muzaffar about the manuscript and to seek, seek his advice, and I'm very grateful to him for, to agree, for agreeing to do that. Um, as... Uh, Rajna says, now let's see what's happening here. Oops. Let's have another go. There we are. Tipu is very famous. Um, he's unfortunately rather squashed there. Uh, <laughs> something's happened to it in the transmission, um, which probably means that the rest of the images will look a bit squashed as well. He's famous primarily for being killed by the British um, in 1799. Uh, he was killed defending his capital uh, against uh, the British and their allies when they attacked him. Uh, and as was the practice at that time, after he was killed, they looted his palace. Uh, and amongst the very large amount of prize, as they called it, uh, or loot, removed uh, from the palace um, at the Sri Rangapatna fort was a small diary, primarily containing a record of 37 of Tipu's dreams. This manuscript is now in the India Office Library, or the British Library, in the, in, originally in the India Office Library collection. It covers the period uh, April 1786 to January 1799, it's written in Persian in his, his own hand, and it's probably the most personal document associated with Tipu that remains extant. William Kirkpatrick, who was the British officer who found the register, described how it had been located, while they were ransacking the palace, um, in, quote, an escritoire among several papers of a secret nature. And he noted in a letter to the Governor-General, Lord Mornington, that Tipu had, quote, always manifested peculiar anxiety to conceal it from the view of those who happened to approach him while he was either reading or writing in it. Now, even though the major part of the register is in Tipu's handwriting, uh, it's clear that at least one other person uh, than Tipu wrote in the book, which contains, as well as the dreams, short memoranda on a variety of subjects, at least one of which is in a different hand. In fact, I think there are two that are in, written in by somebody else. Most probably, this other person was his personal secretary, or Munshi, uh, who was Habibullah. Um, he was the source of Kirkpatrick's information about Tipu hiding the register from other people, uh, but I suspect that um, he perhaps was one of the people who was allowed to have access to it. That's the first page of the Dream Manuscript. 
The dreams in the manuscript vary in length and span almost the entire period of Tipu's reign. Um, his father died in December 1782 and he came to power immediately after that and he died, of course, in May 1799. However, there are years for which no dreams are recorded and the final 16 date from the last three years of his life. Now, I need to say something about the dating of the dreams, uh, which is at times problematic, uh, because Tipu used his own calendar rather than the Muslim Hijri calendar. Now, sometimes he provides both dates, um, which obviously enables us to work out uh, what the date of the dream is that he's referring to, but that's actually quite rare. He does it early on in the register and then towards the end. Kirkpatrick spent a lot of time going through a lot of uh, Tipu's documents and letters. He translated a, a well-known collection of um, his letters. He collected a lot of material. He left notes, um, which are now in the Indra Office Library. Um, and with his information, it is possible to more or less work out fairly close dates for the dreams, which is what I've tried to do. Of particular interest uh, is the fact that the dreams are not in exact date order, especially those stated, stated as occurring prior to 1790, but also occasionally later in the text. Only dreams three and four in the register are described as having been written down on waking, but dream three occurred on the 19th of May 1787 and dream four in June 1790. And this indicates that the text was not compiled as the dreams were dreamt, but rather sometime later. Dream 13, for example, occurred on the 5th of October 1786 and also contains the report of subsequent proof of Tipu's correct interpretation of its meaning. And it follows dreams that occurred in 1790. The subject matter of the dreams ranges from those with a military orientation, whether against the British or other unbelievers, to encounters with Sufi saints, the prophet and his son-in-law, Imam Ali, as well as the great mystic poets Saadi and Jami. Others have a more surreal content. Some, as I've already noted, have Tipu's interpretation attached to them. The heading at the top of the first folio in the register is also telling. The dreams I have had and am having are recorded in this book, with the, with the words am having inserted below the line as a later addition or afterthought. Um, those of you who can read Persian might be able to see that. There's also a very large number of blank pages in the manuscript, over 100, between the numbered folio 16, on which the Dream 37 is recorded, and numbered folio 17. Um, we can only assume that the intervening pages were left blank to allow for the inclusion of later dreams. So what I'm going to talk about today is, is generally um, about my research project uh, rather than present a specific paper. I have written a couple of articles that have been uh, published or one's just about to appear on this. Um, but I thought, given that I'm talking about the sort of heuristic potential of this manuscript, that I'd just talk generally about what I've been doing. And basically what I'm doing is considering his dream book, Tipu's dream book, within the context of his life, and the period in which he lived. And this is in contrast to earlier writers who have, on the whole, been concerned with issues arising from the manner of his death. And I apologise for this disgustingly oriental painting, <laughs> but they're basically the only ones we have, obviously, uh, depicting uh, the sack of Sri Rangapatna. Um, and this is, in fact, he did, in fact, die fighting hand-to-hand -hand with British soldiers. So this, I guess it's fairly accurate. Um, which is one of the things that makes him such a romantic figure, of course. Now, despite the fact that Tipu's realm was never subjugated to British rule, nor even signed a subsidiary alliance with them, his death at their hands and his constant opposition to their activities on the subcontinent have meant that his life has predominantly been studied through a colonial or post-colonial lens. Early British writers, for example, suggested that the dreams revealed Tipu's main preoccupation during his reign to be fight with fighting his enemies, primarily the Marathas and the British, and expelling the latter from the subcontinent. Now, to some extent, I'd agree with this, uh, but only partially and for different reasons, which I'll go into later. Even though an English translation of the dreams by Mahmoud Hussain, who's a Pakistani, 
uh, was published in the late 1950s in Karachi, uh, little work has been done on the significance of the dreams themselves. Shortly after the conquest of Mysore, Alexander Beetson, a British officer who'd been present at the siege of Sri Rangapatna, he was actually the Governor-General's aide-de-camp, included English translations of six of the dreams as an appendix to his book on the Mysore War, describing them as, quote, extraordinary productions. He noted that from, quote, some of these, it appears, that war and conquest and the destruction of the Kafirs, the infidels, were not less the subjects of his sleeping than of his waking thoughts. In the mid-19th century, Nathaniel Bland, who was a member of the Royal Asiatic Society, translated 10 more of the dreams in an article on the Islamic science of dream interpretation or, or tabir. Bland, Bland explained his choice of dreams. I'm going to read a fairly long quote from him. This is what he said. The first three represent the majority of those in the whole collection, being chiefly in reference to war with the English or with the Marathas and promises of assistance from the French government or native chiefs. The others are of a more miscellaneous character, and the last two possess considerable interest as relating the appearance of the poets Saadi and Jami in the Sultan's dreams, and exhibiting, by his high veneration for their persons, his love of literature and poetry, which were combined in so remarkable manner with the fierce cruelty of his disposition. The few, actually 21 of the 27, which remain unpublished, this is still bland, after these specimens will be found of very little interest for those who might be inclined to peruse the whole. Now, clearly, that's not a sentiment that I agree with. The extensive mythologising that surrounded Tipu Sultan and his life presents the historian with a fog of misinformation that has to be penetrated in order to achieve a better understanding of who he was. Given that the dream book is arguably the most personal, personal document associated with Tipu available to historians, it seemed to me that an analysis of the dreams would prove to be a useful heuristic device for understanding more about his reign and his cultural milieu. Now, I'm not alone in recognising the potential uh, value of dream books to historians. In fact, there seems to be an enormous craze uh, for writing about dreams at the moment, which I wasn't aware of when I started this. Um, I've obviously tapped into some zeitgeist. Um, Niall Green, for example, has written an article on uh, dreams in Islam, and he's pointed out that um, research that's been carried out over the past few decades into the place of dreams and visions within the Islamic cultural universe has brought, quote, new insight into the Muslim past, allowing an often intimate encounter with past individuals and private experiences scarcely granted by the analysis of other kinds of documentation. Green's also noted that the, quote, cultural embeddedness of dreams and visions gives them potential as a useful means of charting some of the parameters of the inner imaginative universe of the Muslim past. Clearly, you know, I agree with him. <laughs> as well as the dreams that uh, didn't contain material that specifically interested them, what the early translators also did not consider worthy of examination was the existence in the manuscript of other non-dream items, of which there are 25. Most of them are quite short. These include the reports of apparently auspicious or inauspicious events, as well as a list of the names of men killed or taken prisoner at Travancore at the start of the Third Anglo-Mysore War in 1790. And that's the list. The register also contains the reported dream of a Muslim holy man from Kolar named Said Muhammad Aslam. It's not a, the, the dream unfortunately is not dated. Now this is one that's not apparently in Tipu's handwriting. Well, that's what I think. Do you agree, Musafa? These last items, the list of the dead and Muhammad Aslam's dream, appear at the end of the book. Tipu's own dreams come at the front of the manuscript, which appears to have been a work in progress, with the last dream dating from 16th of January 1799, less than four months before his death. Four of the non-dream reports are written consecutively between the 22nd and 23rd dream, third dreams in the register, while others have been placed in the final pages. 
The four news items that occur within the recorded dreams are brief, although some of the items at the end of the text are a little longer. The first two items, both of which report events that occurred in 1795, briefly record the time and date of someone's death. The first person is Muhammad Ali Khan, described as, quote, disloyal to the realm, Badshahi, and is almost certainly referring to the Nawab of the Carnatic, who died in 1795. Very famous picture of him. The second reports the death of the Peshwa Sawai Madhav Rao II, who, it is stated in the dream, died by falling from an upper chamber. This was also in October 1795. And there he is. The other two items relate to the following year and are reports of what can only be described from Tipu's viewpoint as good tidings and thus no doubt to be considered auspicious. The first tells of the death of an enemy of the Sakari Khuradad, which literally means the God-given realm, which means Tipu's kingdom, the reference to Badshahi probably refers to the Mughal Empire rather than his own, because he didn't actually use that term himself to refer to his own kingdom. So I think he's probably referring to the Mughals when he refers to the Nawab being disloyal. Um, so the first tells of the death of an enemy, revealed by a great shooting star in the east towards Hyderabad. The second notes a report from Tipu's newswriter in Delhi about a huge fire at Benares, that, he notes, is in the possession or under the control of the British, oh, sorry, the English. Um, and this uh, is referring to this fire that apparently happened in August 1795. So no doubt he would have been delighted that um, this had occurred. The non-dream entries at the end of the register are of a similar nature. For example, an entry that's not in Tipu's handwriting is a report of unnaturally large footprints having been found in a field. Now, I actually haven't got to sort of working on them uh, in terms of the Persian yet, um, and they haven't been translated into English, so um, that's about the amount of information I have on that at the moment. Except for an occasional acknowledgement of their existence, previous writers have all but disregarded these so-called memoranda in their discussions of the dreams. For example, apart from Muhammad Aslam's dream, Hussein did not include them in his translation as he didn't feel that they fitted, quote, into the scheme of the book. I believe, though, that he misinterpreted the significance of the memoranda to the register. Uh, and this is supported by a reference in Charles Stewart's descriptive catalogue of Tipu's library, which was published in 1809. This refers to an item described as a news book containing, and this is a quote, extracts from newspapers and memorandums of particular occurrences in which the Sultan thought himself concerned, the notes of memorandums much resemble the style of his dreams. And he would have been familiar with the dreams from the early translations that were made by Beetson. Now, it's unlikely that these similarities are coincidental. Indeed, along with the fact that four of the news items appear within the recorded, within the recorded dreams, the similarities imply that it would be fruitful to take a more holistic approach to the dream register than scholars have previously done. And clearly this is what I'm doing. Now there are several ways that we can approach the dream book as a subject of analysis. And obviously as I've gone along, I've sort of done various things and changed my approach and so on and formed various conclusions. But it's interesting, for example, to consider why Tipu recorded the dreams that he did. As I've said, there were periods when he either did not dream significant dreams or he was unable to record them. Or perhaps he saw no purpose in recording them. Catherine Ewing has argued that greater store than usual is placed in dreams when a person is facing conflict or stress. The mind can both express and attempt to resolve stress or distress through dreams. At times of extreme st stress, dreams can in fact be therapeutic and transformative. Could this perhaps account for Tipu's register of dreams? The last three years of his life, from which 16 of the dreams date, would certainly have been a period when the Mysore ruler was under stress. In 1792, at the end of the Third Anglo-Mysore War, he'd been forced to sign a humiliating treaty uh, with the British and their allies that required him not only to give up a substantial amount of territory, 
but also two of his sons as hostages to ensure that he paid a large monetary indemnity. Yet another famous Orientalist painting, this time of the princes being given up as hostages. <coughs> the two young princes, aged eight and five, remained in the custody of the British at Madras for two years, returning to Mysore in March 1794. These events, followed by several years of unsuccessful attempts to improve relations with the Marathas and the Nizam of Hyderabad, both of whom had, who had, allied, both of whom had allied themselves with the British in the war, along with failed approaches to seek assistance from rulers further afield in order to reduce the power of the enemy and expel them from the subcontinent, would have drained the mental reserves of the strongest of men. And I'm going to discuss this in a bit more depth a little later. In the early stages of my research, I focused on the subject matter or content of the dreams. Now, dreams, of course, play a major role in legitimating authority in the Muslim world. This is the case for both kings and Sufi saints. Over the centuries, both the worldly and the religious have used dreams to bolster legitimacy, support policies or counter conspiracies. Several of Tipu's dreams convey either explicitly or implicitly the favour of God or of revered Islamic figures. In Dream 27, uh, which is dated from February 1797, which occurred while he was away from the capital for shikar or hunting, uh, Tipu dreams that he performs the Hajj, something he never actually did in real life. At the Kaaba, he receives a turban, which he is told God has conferred upon him. It was, he writes, an exquisite piece of craftsmanship. After having a look at it, I refolded the turban with care and put it in the box and carried it with me. Later, in a dream dating from early 1798, he again receives a gift of turbans, one from the Prophet and another from Muhammad al-Husseini Gesu Raz of Gulbarga, one of India's most significant Sufi saints. <coughs> oh, that's his tomb. In the context of the transfer of power or authority, whether between ruler and subject or Sufi saint and disciple, the act of bestowing a turban is heavy with meaning. This is actually a 19th century, about 1880s photograph. Tipu concludes in his dream, my interpretation of the dream is that God Almighty and our prophet have conferred the empire of the seven climes upon me. Uh, given this was 1798, I think this is wishful thinking. A well-known hadith states, whoever has seen me in a dream has really seen me, obviously that's the prophet speaking, and the mere presence in a dream of the prophet Ali or the significant Sufi such as Gesu Daraz would have been enough to indicate support for the Mysore ruler. As well as the bestowal of turbans, in an earlier dream, this dates from 1790, Tipu receives important sacred relics from the Gulbarga saint, including pieces of cloth from the covers of both the Kaaba and the saint's tomb and an inscribed copy of the Quran. The two holy men who deliver the gifts to Tipu point out that, quote, the saint had done a great favour by sending this copy of the Quran for me, as he, quote, used to recite constantly from it. As a result of this dream, Tipu made an offering in the name of Gezu Duraz, a recitation of the Fatiha on 11 cauldrons of sweets. An early dream dated November 1786 contains even more powerful approval um, Sorry, it contains even more powerful approval. It is the day of judgment. And Tipu is approached by a tall and impressive looking stranger, quote, with a bright face and red beard and moustaches. Taking Tipu's hand, he asks, do you know who I am? I told him I did not. He then said to me, I am Mataraza Ali, and the messenger of God has said, and is still repeating it, that he would not set his foot in paradise without you and would wait for you and enter the paradise with you. I felt so happy and woke up. God is all powerful and the messenger is the intercessor. This suffices. It's hard to imagine that the Mysore ruler would have kept such information to himself. As someone who devoted a great deal of energy and imagination to asserting his right to rule, it's unlikely that he wouldn't have added dreams of this nature to his arsenal. I need to make a point here about uh, my reference to uh, 
the terms Muslim and Hindu. It's generally accepted that when writing about Islamicate South Asia, the term Muslim, terms Muslim and Hindu are not particularly useful descriptors at the local level. So I want to point out they do recognise that. However, uh, Gilmartin and Lawrence have not Lawrence have acknowledged that in a wider sense people did draw on these large, what they call large framing categories as authoritative sources for the language of legitimacy. And I would suggest that the dreams of this character reflect the importance to Tipu of this larger referential framework of authority. Also, if we look at more closely at dreams that feature Muslim luminaries of the past, important historical figures and so on, we find that they also function to link Tipu and his kingdom into the broader regional and historical narratives of the Muslim world. As well as Gezu Daraz, another important Sufi saint mentioned in the dreams is Said Jalaluddin Bukhari, known as Mahdum Jahanian Jahangasht, whose shrine is at Uch in Pakistan. The epithet Jahangasht means world rover, and the Uch saint is famous for his travels in the Middle East and Central Asia. Now, to be accurate, although I say features in a dream, it's actually a hill that's named after him, uh, which is now in Tabul Nadu, but was then in part of Tipu's kingdom. How Muslims in South India came to name a hill after him is not clear, but such an act could well have served as a means of anchoring Islam to the region. A similar process might be seen in Tipu's recording of a dream in late 1798, in which he encounters the Persian poet Sadi. Uh, there's a whole lot of waffle at the beginning of all the dreams about the date. So it says on the 13th of the month, etc., etc., year, time, and so on. Uh, so he says, on the 14th night of the moon, the following day being Tuesday, in the early hours of the morning, I had a dream. I saw Hazrat Sadi Shirazi. I most respectfully offered him a seat. He seemed to be very pleased. I inquired about him. I inquired, sorry, from him about what countries he had visited. Hindustan, Arcot, the country of Abdun Nabi Khan, the country of Kalapant and Konkan, was his reply. Then he recited several verses and couplets, and after going around the palace, he took a seat. In the meantime, I woke up, since the morning had already dawned. Similarly, the following dream, sorry, the dream following this one in the register, rec recounts a meeting with the poet Jami, who was born in the province of Herat. Having entered a garden and noticed some buildings, Tipu learns that the poet is staying there. I went to the Maulana and expressed my pleasure at his arrival. The Maulana said to me, I have come to meet you. I again repeated how nice and appropriate it was that he had come and added, in old times lived Maulana Sadi and in our own God Almighty had produced Maulana Jami and sent him to us. I shall seek his blessings. Having said that, I took the Maulana with me to the, my residence. What's significant here is that for Tipu, the presence of the poets is very real. An important element of Muslim attitudes towards dreams is the lack of perceived separation between the material and non-material realms. It's in this reality that the power of the dream resides. Even after death, peers are believed by their devotees to continue to live. And Sufi thought posits the theory of an intermediate world known as the Alam al-Mital, or world of images, which serves as the interface between the living and the dead. Tipu's legitimacy as a Parvanu ruler, uh, his father in fact had seized power from a, a previous Hindu dynasty, in a world where kingship was conditional and thus subject to challenge, was frequently denounced by his enemies and those who regarded him as an upstart with ambitions beyond his station. Amongst those who refused to acknowledge Tipu's claims were both the Mughal Emperor, Shah Alam II, and Nizam Ali Khan of Hyderabad, both Muslims. Placed within the broader authoritative framework of Islamicate India, the dreams would have been powerful indicators of Tipu's right to rule in the face of the opposition of these two men. In addition, the stories of the travels of saints can also serve to incorporate physical space into a wider sacred geography. Like Jahanian Jahangasht already mentioned, many of the major Sufi saints of the Indian subcontinent had led migratory lives, and their hagiographies tie together the places they visited 
providing them with sacred meaning. The tradition of secondary shrines developed to mark the stopping place of a significant saint. Not infrequently, these travels were imaginary rather than real, but served to provide institutional authority and bind together the sacred geography, both of the region and further afield. In this context, context the places visited by Saadi of Shiraz in Tipu's dreams referred to earlier are clearly not merely arbitrary. As well as locations situated with, within Tipu's kingdoms, that is the previous de de domain of Abdun Nabi Khan, um, centred on Kadapa, and Naragund, where the Maratha Kalapant had held sway, Kunkan and Arkot in the Carnatic were adjacent to his realm, and Hindustan, of course, was the seat of Mughal power. As well as drawing Mysore into a Muslim narrative framework then, Saadi's journey, as related in the dream, places the kingdom firmly within the physical geography of Islamic India. In addition, green studies of the Sufi saints of Aurangabad underline the importance of history and sacred geography for linking communities to ancestral territories. In the case of the Aurangabad saints, they emphasise their historical links with Central Asia, as well as with the Mughal dynasty. This was in contrast to earlier Deccani Sufis, who, like the independent Muslim Deccani kingdoms, such as Bijapur and Golconda, looked to Iran. In addition, it was common for ruling families to have links with specific Sufi orders or, or, or saints. Both the Mughals and the Asaf Jahis of Hyderabad had close ties with the Chistia and Naqshbandiya orders. This included the Chistia shrine of Gezu Daraz of Gulbarga, who had originally been attached to the great Delhi shrine of Nizamuddin Aliya. Tipu's family also claimed hereditary links with this shrine. Sheikh Wali Muhammad, Tipu's great-great-grandfather, had settled in Gulbarga during the reign of Muhammad Adil Shah of Bijapur, where he married one of his daughters to a servant of the shrine. Tipu, too, attempted unsuccessfully to form such an alliance in the mid-1790s, seeking one of the Piazada's daughters as a wife for one of his sons. Um, unsurprisingly, he uh, didn't get permission because the saint felt he should ask the Nizam first of all because he was in the Nizam's kingdom. And of course, the Nizam said no. <laughs> so it's not surprising that this particular saint features predominantly in his dream register. As do other Indo-Islamic dreams, we can see that tipus contain elements of local beliefs incorporated into the broader framework of Muslim dream literature and symbolism. This clearly has a bearing on how we consider the dreams in the register that have specifically Hindu references. The three dreams in this category date from the second half of the 1790s. The first, dated May 1795, concerns an event that seems to have occurred at Sri Rangapatna. This is Tipu's capital. And I'll just read out what he says. Around the tower at the gate of the temple, the unbelievers had tied rods of wood at great heights for the purpose of illumination and had fixed lights on them. In a moment, the lights went out and the rods fell and the gate collapsed. There was such a crash that all the buildings shook and this servant of God, that's how he refers to himself, this servant of God also came out of the buildings somewhat disturbed. I asked people to come out of their houses quickly and inquire about the people who were residing in the many houses that were situated so close to the temple. People went and brought the news that the gate had collapsed but the people living in the neighbourhood were all safe. In the meantime, morning dawned and I woke up. It's very likely that the temple referred to here is the Sri Ranganatha temple next to Tipu's, pa Tipu's palace and the most important temple on the island. Sri Rangapatna is on an island in the middle of the Kaveri River. Perhaps what is most notable, noticeable in this dream is the Mysore ruler's concern for the people living near the temple undoubtedly Hindus. This is in marked contrast to his attitude toward unbelievers, such as the Kanara Christians, whom he refers to in an earlier dream, uh, dated August 1789, and whom he had prayed would be converted to Islam. The difference, of course, is that the Kanara Christians were his enemy, whereas the Hindu inhabitants of his capital were his subjects. Even so, although he does not say as much, Tipu could well have interpreted the collapse of the tower 
as symbolic of God's displeasure at the Hindus' so-called idolatrous practices. The second dream dates from December 1796 and again refers to a Hindu temple. He writes, In the morning I had the following dream. There seemed to be a big temple, the back portion of which was slightly damaged. It contained several large idols. I went into the temple, along with a few other men, and noticed that the idols were seeing like human beings, and their eyes were in motion. Someone suggested to me that it sounded like a Bollywood movie. Um, I was surprised to see the eyes of the idols moving like those of the living, and wondered what it could be due to. Then I approached them. In the last row, there were two female idols, one of these two, drawing out her sari from betwixt her two knees, stated that both of them were women, while the rest of the idols were the images of men and other objects. She added that they had been praying to God for a long time, and everyone ought to nourish oneself. I said to her, that is fine. Do keep yourself occupied with the remembrance of God. Having said that, I ordered my men to repair the dilapidated building. In the meantime, I woke up. The last of the three dreams occurred in November 1798 and is number 33 of the 37 dreams in the register, although it's the penultimate by date. Tipu's interpretation, this is one of the few that does have an interpretation, links it to the dream just quoted. While in the metropolis I had a dream, I seemed to be reciting the names of God on almonds, among which I had mixed salgram stones, salgram being an object of worship by the unbelievers. My motive in doing so was that, like their idols who were embracing Islam, the unbelievers also would enter the fold of Islam. On concluding my recitation, I stated that all the idols of the unbelievers had embraced Islam, and I ordered the stones to be picked out and replaced by almonds. My interpretation is that by the grace of God, all unbelievers would embrace Islam, and the country would pass into the hands of the Sakare Khudadad. It's of interest that these last two dreams refer to idols or Hindu images. Shimul has noted that despite the fiercely iconoclastic nature of Islam, the terminology of idols, this is a quote, permeates the entire corpus of Persian, Turkish and Indo-Muslim literatures. Although in literature the terminology is understood to be metaphorical, the beloved in poetry can be addressed as but, which is idol or image, for example, such usage underscores the Muslim abhorrence of, and thus preoccupation with, idols and idol worship. I'm using that with inverted commas around it. These two dreams, dating from when the, within the last three or so years of his life, could well be evidence that Tipu's reign had become increasingly Islamic in focus. I've argued elsewhere that the adoption in 1792 of the expression Sakhari Khudadad, or God-given state, to refer to his kingdom, appears to have accompanied a conscious move by Tipu in this direction following the humiliating out outcome of the Third Anglo-Mysore War. By 1798, he would have become increasingly alarmed by the aggressive attitude of the British and his failure to secure allies in his contest with them. His optimistic interpretation of the last of the three dreams no doubt indicates how heavily such matters weighed upon his mind at the time. Now, finally, I want to talk about what I've just been doing recently. Um, relates to a conference paper I should be giving in Philadelphia. Um, and this is what we might infer from the actual structure and chronology of the dream book. Scholars of Islam have explored in a variety of ways Muslims' relationships with the past, not just in the context of dreams and visions, but also of other intellectual disciplines such as jurisprudence. In doing so, they emphasise the relevance not only of epistemological and ontological attitudes, but also how the nature of a specific historical period directly influenced the development of such systems. So, for example, Aziz al-Azmi, in examining legal texts produced during the 11th to 14th century, what he terms the period of classical maturity of Islamic jurisprudence, has found normative processes at work, quote, aimed at recasting the infinite particularities of the mutable world in terms of immutable principles, um, primarily to be those to be found in scripture. Through classifying and naming, the, jurist ren the jurists rendered singular the vastly divergent and diverse nature of the Muslim past 
under, quote, the mythological label of Islamic history. Similarly, the, the great 18th century mystic and thinker Shah Waliullah lived at a time of intense Shia-Sunni rivalry, and this was reflected in his writing. Drawing on established systems of thought, he quotes, this is Marcia Hermanson I'm quoting, he struggled with the novel and the anomalous, attempting to make sense of his world by performing what Hermanson calls a sort of retrospective divination. Clearly, Tipu does not fall into the same intellectual category as the great Islamic thinkers. But he would have had a familiarity as an educated Muslim with particular modes of thought and bodies of knowledge. In particular, he would have understood the world as comprised of different orders of reality, including the absent or unseen realm, alam al-ghaib, of which the alam al-mital, or world of images, was an aspect. And, as Hermanson notes, dreams and visionary experiences are regarded as a means of receiving insights and information about this realm, with the alam al-mital regarded by mystics as specifically linked to destiny and things to come. As I've already indicated, for the inhabitants of Tipu's world, the interconnected nature of the universe, the lack of separation between spirit and matter was unquestioned, and a variety of means were available not only to make sense of the world, but also to enable prognostication. To reduce risk and navigate safely through life, people relied on a whole range of divinatory practices, frequently in combination, including dream interpretation and ast astrology. Tipu's dream book is therefore unexceptional in that it forms part of a long tradition of recording dreams in the Islamic world. However, as Asme and Hermanson have indicated, such texts cannot be properly understood unless the historical context of their production is also taken into account. We need therefore to ask what circumstances shaped the form and content of the register. Why were the dreams not recorded in chronological order, for example? Why do 16 of the 37 recorded dreams date from the last three years of Tipu's life? Now, although what follows is purely speculative, I believe it goes some way towards providing answers to such questions. As already noted, the structure of the dream register, especially the fact that the dreams were not recorded in chronological order, means that Tipu did not compile the manuscript as the dreams occurred. In fact, I would argue that a strong case can be made that he did not start recording the dreams in this particular book until 1795, even though the earliest dream dates from 1786. Firstly, the heading with the words am having, which I referred to earlier, inserted below the line as a later edition, implies that initially, Tipu's intention had merely been to record past dreams, but he then changed his mind and decided to record future dreams as well. Also, the dreams indicated as having occurred from 1795 onwards are not only more numerous, but with one exception are recorded in chronological order by year, if not by month. So you basically get blocks of year, dreams from a particular year. As I've already said, this is not the case with the earlier dreams. That's number 1 to 17. The exception to the post-1795 dreams is recorded after the three dreams that occurred in 1795 and is dated March 1794. It's followed first by a dream dated 7th of December 1796, the four news items dated 1795 and 1796 that I referred to earlier, and then a dream dated August, 7, dated August 1796. Uh, I'm just going to read out the dream uh, from 1794. Uh, now, this is dated March 1794, which, interestingly, is when the hostage princes, hostage princes were returned to Mysore um, by the British. Now, I don't know whether this has any bearing on the significance of this dream or not. You get the waffle about the dates. He says, I had a dream. I saw that the Diwan of Nizam Ali Khan had arrived. As to his appearance, he had no teeth in the mouth and he had dyed his hair. He was seeking help from me. The servant of God, that is Tipu, said to him, All right, you, settle down. Let me consult my advisers, after which you will have my reply. After speaking to him in this manner, I sent him outside the fort for being put up and said to myself that one should console such people in conversation. The Poonawalla, that is the Peshwa, 
was the first to seek assistance, and now it was the turn of those people to seek assistance. But one could not depend on their word. At this juncture, I woke up. The content of the dream alerts us to what might have been driving the compilation of the dream book. It was during the mid-1790s that Tipu was most active in seeking allies, including the Nizam, in his fight to expel the British from the Indian subcontinent. As I've said, following the humiliation brought about by the end of the Third Anglo-Mysore War in 1792, Tipu's mind was increasingly focused on this struggle, but his efforts were ultimately fruitless. The following dream dated 29th of January 1797 perfectly reveals this preoccupation. Stuff about the date. It was on Tuesday at the Metropolis. In the early hours of the morning, I had a dream. Raghunath Rao, the Maratha agent, who had been to me before, appeared before me and said, the English have suffered a crushing defeat in Europe and are now on the verge of leaving Bengal voluntarily. On hearing this statement, I said, that is fine. I will dispatch troops as well as money. If God wills, the Nazarenes, the Christians, will be expelled from India. Here is a man who has no illusions about what he is facing and the threat posed by the British, not just himself, but also to other regional powers. Under these circumstances, it's not surprising that he searched for meaning and guidance through the medium of his dreams. If we accept the hypothesis that the register was conceived in the mid-1790s, probably in 1795, we should now consider why the earlier dreams were included. As with the later entries in the book, the dates of these earlier dreams are also revealing. Six of the dreams date from the year 1786, one from 1787, two from 1789, and eight from 1790. If we look at the significance of these years to Tipu's reign, we find that these early dreams all date from periods of military success or that might have had a positive military resonance for the Mysore ruler. In early 1786, the Marathas invaded northern Mysore, with hostilities continuing through into April 1787, when the Treaty of Gajendragad brought them to an end. The dream recorded for 1787 is dated 19th of May, not long after the treaty's signing. The Maratha-Mysore conflict had ultimately been resolved through diplomacy, but on several occasions, Tipu's forces had proved themselves to be more than a match for the Marathas. The two dreams dated 1789 are indicated as having occurred in the months of August and October. Although the Third Anglo-Mysore War triggered by Tipu's attack on the Raja of Travancore's defensive lines officially com commenced in April 1790, trouble had started brewing in mm -hmm. late 1789, leading to Tipu's encampment near the lines, this is like a, de a defensive fortification, uh, in December that year. The following year, in November, he invaded the Carnatic and achieved several vi victories. But the tide was turning against him and he experienced defeats in Malabar. The war itself ended in early 1792, when he was forced to, fight to sign the Treaty of Seringapatam. The largest block of early dreams, eight in total, date from the middle and latter part of 1790, prior to this change in fortunes. The year 1791 was particularly bad with the Mysoreans suffering a string of defeats from February to July. Given the importance placed on dreams and visions within the Muslim world, it's unlikely that Tibu had always kept, it is likely that Tibu had always kept records of dreams he regarded as true or significant. In 1795 though, feeling increasingly isolated and threatened, he seems to have decided to create a register of particular dreams that he had experienced, along with other auspicious or inauspicious events. What we might ask was his motivation. Was it purely prognostic, an attempt to divine the future? Or was it an attempt to achieve something more? Could he, in fact, have been attempting to influence events, to turn the course of destiny? Within Islam, it's recognised that dreams gain power through their telling. After all, it's only through their narration that dreams actually survive. Writing, too, is a powerful act the sacred quality of the Arabic script lending it considerable barakah or charisma. It seems reasonable to suggest then that Tipu's dream book could well have been compiled for as, as much for talismanic as for prognostic purposes. Habibullah's report 
that Tipu was careful to conceal the book from certain people could perhaps be an indication of the book's power. This was clearly no ordinary book. Tipu himself wrote in it, not one of his scribes who, was, who were numerous. That is for Rochina. <laughs> I will explain the significance of that in a moment. Such a conclusion, of course, raises other questions. I still have a great deal more work to do on the actual content and language of the dreams. Can we see in the register example an attempt by Tipu to construct a new or different reality, one that returned him to his glory days of the 1780s? Also worthy of consideration is the relevance of issues relating to modernity. Janikinaya has described the period in which Tipu lived as one of flux and experimentation, and his government as a melange of established Indo-Islamic techniques of statecraft, European military practice, and a state-run economy. Scholars working on dreams in the early modern period in Europe have clearly demonstrated that old and new attitudes can ex exist alongside each other without apparent contradiction. This suggests we should also re-examine Tipu's dreams in that context. Finally, I believe the manuscript must also be considered in relation to other texts produced under Tipu's direction in terms of the latter's subject matter and date of composition. It may be that certain concordances exist that will shed even more light on the nature and purpose of the dream book. It is, as I've already indicated, probably the most personal document associated with Tipu that we have. For that reason alone, it deserves to be considered as a significant text in its own right, in depth and in its entirety. Thank you. Uh, I should say something about the tiger. <laughs> Um, this is Tipu's tiger. Some of you may have seen it in the Victorian Albert Museum. It is the most famous exhibit. It's one of the most popular exhibits in the museum in London. Um, I've put it in because Rachel had never seen it and so she wanted to see what it looked like. It's actually um, thought to have been made by the French. Uh, it has in the past been referred to as a toy. Clearly it's a tiger attacking a, a British soldier. Uh, you wind it up and it makes roaring growling noises and you can also play on a tune on it um, and it's always on display I think um, now I've never thought of it as a toy I don't think it is Tipu obviously was not a child and I, I'm now that I'm thinking about the dream book as possibly having some kind of power attached to it I'm wondering what kind of power he might have perceived in this as well but that's another issue <laughs>